production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, which is devoted to conversations of consequence, which uh, enable democracy to thrive. It's Friday, January 26th. I'm Heather Hodges, um, President and Ambassador of the Cleveland Council on World Affairs. I'm honored to introduce today our forum and our speaker, and yes, it's true, this is the fourth time I've introduced Aaron. It shows that I'm a member of his fan club. Also, it shows that he's good enough to speak here in Cleveland from time to time. Though headlines are dominated by Ukraine, uh, Israel, and Gaza, those are just a few of the issues on a lengthy United States foreign policy agenda. As President Biden ramps up his re-election campaign, he is faced with an unending list of foreign policy challenges. China, China's interest in, in Taiwan threatens democracy and US investments there. Developing democracies in Africa need support. And economic and political crises in Central and South America are creating migration challenges that are, uh, that are for our country's southern border. border. Our speaker today, Aaron David Miller, joins us to take a closer look at these issues and more while considering US foreign policy, diplomacy, and efforts to bring about peace around the world. Aaron Miller is a senior fellow at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, focusing on US foreign policy. Between 1978 and 2003, Miller served as the State at the State Department as a historian, analyst, negotiator, and advisor to Republican and Democratic secretaries of state, as a matter of fact, six of them, uh, where he helped formulate US policy in the Middle East and, Arab -Israel and the Arab-Israel peace process. Most recently, he was senior advisor for the Arab-Israeli negotiations. He is the author of five books and as a global affairs analyst for CNN. If you have a, a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and city, city Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Aaron Miller. Heather, thanks so much. Um, you represent the best of the Foreign Service. And Dan, thanks again for inviting me. Uh, I really am truly humbled. When you look at the photos on the wall of notable speakers, it's really quite extraordinary, several of whom I, I worked for. Um, it's also great to be back in Cleveland. Lindsay's, grand, uh, Lindsay's father, Alan, is turning 103 in May. We, we come back, we come back um, every six to eight weeks to visit him. Um, so this was a great coincidence. You know, about three years ago before COVID, um, when we were coming to Cleveland, I had a conversation with the TSA um, guy who took, took uh, the ticket and checked my driver's license. They asked me where I was going, and I just instinctively uh, said I'm going home. And I thought to myself, what an intriguing comment. Lindsay and I have been in Washington for 48 years. 48 years, and yet that was my sense. And I thought to myself, well, it's, it's obviously why. I mean, I was born here, my roots are here, my family is here, my friends are here. And the values that shape my life, uh, my outlook on life, my mother and my father, and the extent 
extended Ratner family, Miller, Schaffer, and Ratner family, all of that is, uh, has increased and will become even more meaningful um, over the years. Uh, and my own sense is, yeah, you can take the boy out of Cleveland, but the truth is <clears throat> you can't take Cleveland out of the boy. Um, <clears throat> I, worked, I, had the honor, I had the honor and privilege of working for a half a dozen secretaries of state, George Schultz, um, to Colin Powell. <clears throat> when I left the State Department in January of 2003, shortly before the second Bush administration um, invaded Iraq, um, Powell, Colin Powell, and sadly, I, uh, two funerals I went to at the National Cathedral during COVID, one was Powell, the other was one of my other bosses, Madeleine Albright. Paul gave me two pieces of advice. The first piece of advice is don't ever try to come back. And the second piece of advice was don't ever try to look back. I uh, wholly accepted the first piece. The 25 years I spent in government uh, from the mid-70s, late-70s, to 03 were extraordinary years. Whether they'll come again, I don't know. I worked for men and women that were remarkable each in their own way on issues that um, frankly, were tractable um, and generated a certain measure of hope. A lot has changed since then. And frankly, um, for any number of reasons, um, I've spent the last 20 years in the public conversation. Uh, I rejected Powell's second piece of advice, was, which was don't look back. I felt obligated to look back, both because the taxpayers had paid my salary all those years and because I had an obligation to try to sort through what we got right and what we got wrong. Um, I provided a lot of good advice over the years, but also a lot of bad advice. And it's very hard, extremely difficult, to look in the mirror and admit um, that uh, you didn't get things right, or, or even worse. So what I'd like to do is share with you six observations in 30 minutes, which basically, um, that I've gleaned from traveling the negotiator's highway all those years. I'm not here to sell you anything. My selling days are over. Uh, I'm analyzing with a, with a degree to try to create a measure of clarity, honesty, and integrity, which I think is critically important. If you don't get the analysis right, you see the world only the way you want it to be and not the way it is, you're going to fail every single time. If you see the world only the way you want it to be and you don't look at it the way it is, you'll fail. It's the balance between the way the world is and the way you want it to be, or we want it to be, that usually provides the space and the margin for effective policy. So again, I'll share these six observations with you. They mean a lot to me. Uh, they've guided me. Um, and uh, I think they're worth a listen. Number one, Freud may have said that anatomy is destiny, but in foreign policy, <coughs> geography is destiny. If you want to understand why America behaves the way it does, what are the attitudes and actions that have shaped our policy, the constraints, the limitations, and the advantages, then you have to look first to where we are. I'm from a real estate family where location tripled is the key to success. Understanding American foreign policy is based, in my judgment, uh, on where we are. And where are we? We are the only great power in the history of the world. There are no exceptions. We're sandwiched between two non-predatory powers to our north and south, and fish to our east and west. What one historian, what one historian, I wish it had been me, described as our liquid assets. These liquid assets, these two oceans, afford the United States a margin, a unique set of experiences that none of the other countries, small or large, with which we deal have. I think it explains our arrogance, because we have a margin for error that smaller and even larger countries um, who uh, are shaped by the forces of history and geography, um, we have this margin for error. And we can make significant mistakes without it having to threaten the political or physical integrity. It explains our naivete. Uh, we may have understood what it was like for the small power at one point in our history, maybe the late 18th century, when we were precariously perched on the edge of the eastern seaboard, four million of us, including four, 400,000 slaves, um, with the Brits, the French, and the Spanish literally in our backyard. And yes, the British burned Washington. But that was it. 
we have an extraordinary um, sense of security in this country. And I think it, 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 to that extent, it's positive, but it also skews the way we look at smaller powers. Intellectually, we, we may understand that they're small and they have uh, predatory neighbors. Emotionally, it's uh, harder for us to grasp because we can't and have never felt that way. It also explains our idealism. We have come to believe, and it's, I think it's a positive, and I wouldn't trade this away, um, that all problems in life and in foreign policy and in the world have solutions. I wish that were the case. I mean, I'm, I'm turning 75 in March, and I've come to the conclusion that that's really not, it's not a true statement. Uh, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a devout follower of the Protestant theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who argued that the best you can do is proximate solutions to insoluble problems. If we could come up with proximate solutions to insoluble problems, both at home and abroad, we'd be way ahead of the game. We love declaring war on things, war on terror, the war on mental illness, the war on poverty, the war on racial injustice. We will win the war on cancer, for sure. The other wars are much harder because they require systemic change in a country that often resists it. So where we are is, is critically important because it, freeds, it has freed us to the extent that we, any nation can be freed from the two forces that still capture most countries with which we deal. The force of history, which weighs very heavily, whether it's Russia, China, Egypt, the putative Palestinian state, Israel, and the forces of geography. Most countries don't have the degree of security and margin for that we do. Uh, number two, uh, leadership. The late uh, British historian John Keegan argued that there were six humans that more or less shaped the uh, politics, security of much of the 20th century. Stalin, Hitler, FDR, Mao Zedong, Churchill. He added Lenin. I, I would stop with Churchill. Leaders, two of which, of whom were great and good. Uh, we don't have that kind of leadership. That's why uh, the passing of um, Nelson Mandela was so important. Those sorts of leaders, greatness in our own politics, they don't exist anymore. The word great we use, I use that word great 50 times a day. She's a great tennis player, what a great movie, have a great day. It's lost really meaning any meaning when it comes to politics. I briefed a group of um, Iraqi war vets, roughly in their 40s and 50s. I asked them, give you 10 minutes, identify a president or a politician that you would consider great, relatively in your, in your life, life experience, lifespan. They couldn't come up with one. They asked me, I said, Martin Luther King. And one of them said, but he was assassinated in 1968. I said, I rest my case. It's harder now for America to lead than at any time, in my judgment, um, um, in, in the modern history of the country. Uh, there's a wonderful line from uh, Shakespeare's Henry IV. One character says to the other, you know, I can summon spirits from the vasty deep. And the other one replies, but so can I. The question is, do they come when you call? <laughs> Jack, Kennedy, Jack Kennedy loved that line. Love that line. But leading for America today is much harder. It's much harder because, not because we're declining. I don't buy that. I mean, we have deficits now that we haven't had for a, a, quite a while, but we're not a, I'm not a declinist. We are not a declining power, in my judgment. But the rest, if you believe Fareed Zakari, and he's probably right, the rest are rising. China, CIA describes as a peer competitor. Russia, a power that we, in some respects, took for granted. India the whole global south, they're not coming when we call. Uh, partly it's because powers large and small are determined to frustrate American influence and power, China and Russia. Partly it's because some of the problems that we face today are transnational, pandemic, climate, preservation of biodiversity, non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. We need cooperation with others. We can't solve these problems by ourselves. And then, of course, there is our own predicament at home. President Biden says we need to lead by the, not by the power, by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. And it's not for nothing that Freedom House, uh, in their report 
two years ago, basically came to the conclusion that the world's two largest democracies, India and the United States, has suffered uh, backsliding when it came to democratic norms and practices. So, you know, we can preach all we want, but we have to follow through. And there are many hypocrisies, anomalies, and contradictions in American foreign policy. And there are more apparent in many respects. That does not mean, however, that we can never lead. We are, my, my, one of my former bosses, Madeleine Albright, she borrowed this from Bill Clinton, described the United States as an indispensable power. I mean, de Gaulle once said that the cemeteries of France are filled with indispensable people. So I don't think that's what we are. My friend Bill Burns, who's now running CIA, talks about the United States as a pivotal power. That's a much more accurate, uh, I think, definition. We, we, we can pivot, like on the basketball court, on issues that are critically important and do require American leadership. I was told in the wake of Vietnam, America would never lead again. I was told in the wake of um, Iraq and Afghanistan, we would never lead again. I was told in the wake of Afghanistan, the precipitous and chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, that we would never lead again. And yet, all of a sudden, you have Ukraine, and, um, which is probably the, the greatest security political challenge on the European continent since the end of the Second World War. And the administration, and no, nobody's perfect here, uh, as Joe Biden often says, you know, compare me to the, uh, to the alternative, not to the almighty. The, the fact is that we did lead. It's a long slog. Uh, Paul Poas at the University of Chicago tracks the length of war since 1815. The average length of an interstate conflict is three months. Three months. If it lasts more than a year or two, it's likely to go on for a decade. And Ukraine um, is that kind of war. Um, so I think we, we have to lead. We have to be smart about how we lead, however. We can't afford um, trillion-dollar social science experiments to try to create new foundations in, in countries that may or may not share our values. Uh, and here we lack the kinds of leaders that are necessary, my judgment, to be partners. Three, the Middle East. I'll be very clear about this. Um, it is a broken, angry, and dysfunctional region. It's where I spent the vast majority of my career. Uh, it is a place, I would say unabashedly, where usually, not always, American ideas in war-making and peacemaking, sadly, in my case, go to die. It is not a land of opportunity. It is not a place where, where we should um, have anything other than a very cruel and unforgiving assessment of what is possible. Otherwise, we get ourselves into the trouble. The two longest wars in American history, where the standard for victory was never could we win in a conventional sense, but when could we leave? And leaving is not the metric by which you want to evaluate the success of the international communities, in my judgment, uh, greatest power. That was, those were two costly wars in so many respects. Um, and if you look at Middle East history, what you see is that the Middle East landscape is littered with the remains of great powers who wrongly believed they could somehow impose their will on smaller ones. The Biden administration believed, wrongly, uh, that it could somehow find a way to extricate itself. Uh, and, and that was logical. It was rational. And no one, no one that I've talked to on this side no Palestinian analyst, no Israeli analyst, no European analyst saw October 7th, um, saw October 7th coming. You know, the, one of my favorite rock groups is the Eagles. They have this great song, Hotel California, and, they, and the key takeaway line is, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. That's what the Middle East is, and it's drawn the administration back in. The Israel-Hamas war, now, February 7th will be its fifth month. Right now, my cruel and forgiving assessment is two things. There is, we're in a long, dark tunnel, and there is still no way out. The objectives of, of the Israelis and Hamas uh, are mutually ex uh, exclusive. 
Israelis want to eradicate Hamas as a military organization, destroy its infrastructure above and below ground, kill its senior leadership, and redeem the hostages. Five months into this war, I would suggest that it's, that's virtually impossible. This may well be the first war, if you don't count the summer of 06, the Israeli-Lebanese war, the first war that Israel may actually lose, may actually lose. As far as Hamas is concerned, they wanted to sow chaos and terror to inflict the kind of pain and punishment, sadistic, willful, indiscriminate killing, and they succeeded. You have 150,000 Israelis uprooted from communities in the north because of the Hezbollah problem and in the Gaza envelope uh, because of Gaza. These people cannot go back to their homes. In response, and if anybody thought there was a plan B, people have asked me, why did the Israelis do what they did? Why the blockade? Why the punishing airstrikes? among the most intense in the 21st century? Why the ground campaign, which is still going on? Why, why the exponential rise in Palestinian deaths? Even if you don't believe the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health, we're talking double, double digits in the thousands. Maybe the Israelis have killed eight to 9,000 Hamas fighters. And Gaza, 60% of the population is under the age of 15. So, the, cat, the losses are going to be primarily uh, among civilians and young civilians. Uh, the shock and the trauma of that day um, and how the Israelis responded. Admittedly, you know, if Hamas embeds its military assets around, in, under civilian, which they do, which they do, there's no way you are going to prosecute a successful war and end Hamas as an organization without inflicting grievous harm, injury, and death on Palestinian civilians. There's no way. And there's no way you're going to be able to surge humanitarian assistance into Gaza, which is roughly twice, twice the um, size of the District of Columbia in a free fire zone. And that's the situation that exists, that exists right now. It appears that there may be a negotiation, um, a hostage for prisoner exchange, which would create not an end to the war, but might create, and this is one of the things they're arguing over, how, how long this pause lasts, a month, two months, three months. That's not going to end the war. For the hostages, the 200, 136, 20 of whom are probably dead, either killed uh, on October 7th, their bodies taken back into Gaza to trade, or they died in captivity. So we're probably talking about 100 hostages. Um, that's a, an opening, but it's not going to address or fix the problem. And I won't lie to you. I see very little prospect right now for any rational, logical, easy transition to the so-called day after. We need to take the day after conceit and retire it. It's going to be a series of transitions which may or may not work to make Gaza more stable and more secure. Hamas is likely to survive. When I say Israel lost the war, only because I'm judging victory according to the way the Israelis have judged it which is the eradication, the destruction of Hamas. They will not succeed in that. There are estimated 15,000 Hamas fighters they haven't killed, and the senior leadership is ensconced in tunnels uh, under Khan Yunus, which is in southern Gaza. And Yahya Sinwar, who planned this, has every intention of surviving this. Um, it's a very grim, very grim situation. We go return to it. Um, I'm running out of time here, and I have three more observations I want to make, but I'll be, I'll be quick. Number four, this is a world not to be redeemed or transformed. This is a world to be managed, if we're lucky. I don't think, and if anybody please ask me in the Q&A, there is not a single problem out there in the international community that has a definitive or comprehensive solution. What to do about North Korea? We don't know. How do you deal with a rising China? Unclear. What do you do about Putin's ambitions in Ukraine? What do you do about Iran's putative uh, quest for a deliverable nuclear device? What do you do about the Israeli-Palestinian issue, the, the so-called much-too-promised land problem? And the list goes on and on and on. 
Solving these problems would require transformation. But in life, transformations are really rare. What we need to think about is how to manage. I would call it smart transactions. Making sure that means and ends are calibrated. Using military force when necessary, but using it judiciously. Avoiding nation-building enterprises that bog the United States down. We are in no position right now to provide a lot of advice to other fledgling democracies unless we begin to address the dysfunction um, here. And I think we need to be, again, cruel and unforgiving and divide American interests into what I call the must-haves, those that are really vital for us, and what I call the it-would-be-nice-to-haves, the discretionary ones, the ones that, yeah, it would be great to have, but it's going to be a hard lift, and we have to be judicious. Governing is about choosing. That's what it means to govern. I haven't found this quote, but FDR reportedly said about Abe Lincoln, this is one undeniably greatest pre great president speaking about our clearly undeniably greatest president. He said Lincoln died a sad man because Lincoln could have, not have everything. This is a man who in eight years created a second American revolution and set the country on a new course. So we have to be discreet, we have to be prudent, and we have to, uh, my kids are tired of me saying this, the last time the U.S. was feared, respected, and admired as a great power was um, uh, George H.W. Bush and his immensely talented Secretary of State, James Baker, for whom I worked. My kids say, Dad, I mean, if there are no more James Bakers and Bush 41s, what, what, what do we have? It's a whole other discussion. Um, five. Um, and I don't want to talk about domestic politics. I will talk. I'll talk around it because it's important. It really is. We've seen the enemy, okay? And it's not President Xi, and it's not Vladimir Putin, and it's not the Ayatollah, and it's not Kim Jong-un in North Korea, and it's not Hamas. Yeah, adversaries, enemies, um, governments that we need to somehow manage and deal with. But the real problem, in my judgment, uh, is here. And uh, I, I, I make this assertion because the source of our capacity to project our power abroad has a lot to do with our domestic resilience, our national resourcefulness, our unity. Even though we're diverse and divided, our unity. And that, to me, is, is really at risk. In a binary political system with two parties, it is not functional if one of the parties is somehow indebted, not to the Constitution and the basic principles of representative government, but to an individual. It's not functional. And self-governance, you can't have self-governance when 20 or 30 percent of the country can't agree with, the, with another 30 or 40 percent on basic empirical facts and data. That also doesn't work because it opens up the door for somebody else to define the truth. And that's extremely dangerous. You know, the uh, Constitution of the United States mentions the word I only once. Does anybody know why? How come? Why, why would I, the pronoun I, which Gibbon, the historian Gibbon, describes as the most disgusting of, world, of pronouns. But why would the word I appear in the US Constitution? I'm sorry? Yeah. The founders embedded in Article 2 the inaugural oath. Why did they do that? I mean, I think it's because they realized that the President of the United States is constrained, indebted, and positively inclined to respect the basic principles of the document. Harry Truman said about Nixon that Richard Nixon may have read the Constitution, but he didn't understand it. And in my view, I wrote a book on presidential greatness, the three greats, Washington in the 18th century, Lincoln in the 19th, and FDR in the 20th. All of them had enormous egos, incredibly ambitious men, 
but every one of them was able to turn the M in me upside down, so it became a W in we. Every one of them tethered themselves to goals, objectives that were broader than their own personal vanities and careers. That is the American way. And we've lost. We've, we've lost a lot of that. Um, final point. I have to at least leave with some, some hope. Um, on October 6, 1973, Lindsay and I were in Jerusalem. We'd just come out of Yom Kippur services on our way back to our apartment, and then we heard the sirens. So October 6, uh, 1973, Egypt and Syria began a war with Israel, Yom Kippur, or the October War. We watched a nation traumatized. Until now, the greatest intelligence failure in Israel's history, 2,800 Israeli killed countless numbers of Syrians and Egyptians. And yet, within six years, I watched Sadat, Begin, and Carter sign a full treaty of peace on the White House lawn. Six years after trauma, we have hope. 20 years after 1973, Lindsay and I are on the White House lawn watching Clinton, Arafat, and Rabin sign the Oslo Accords. And yet, what, what we see of Oslo in the Israeli-Palestinian relation lies broken, battered, and bloodied somewhere. In that instance, hope turns to trauma. So how do you, what do we do? In the first instance, trauma turns to hope. In the second, hope to trauma. I mean, my only conclusion at 75, I've been thinking a lot about this, is that we really can't see what's in front of us. And the arc of history bends in ways that none of us, including me, could possibly predict. So what do we do? Well, I think it's very simple. We hope, but we also work. We hope and we work to try to bend the arc in as positive a direction as we possibly can. That's what we do. We don't succumb to despair and hopelessness. That's what we do. Final point, Jack Kennedy, the first and last president who had a, I was 12 when he was murdered, an emotional impact on me, described himself as an idealist without illusion. I borrowed that from Kennedy. I think that's where America should be. Idealism without illusion. Never give up on the prospects of hope and change, and even transformation. But as you go through the process of hope and transformation and change, you must go through it with your eyes wide open. Thank you very much. Aaron David Miller, friends. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club, and as I mentioned, we are joined today by Aaron David Miller. He's Senior Fellow of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, taking a closer look at U.S. foreign policy, diplomacy, and efforts for peace today in the Middle East and beyond. We welcome questions from everyone, including guests, City Club members, and those of you joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org, our radio broadcast at 89.7 WKSU Ideastream Public Media. Our students who are with us today are also invited to ask questions. If you'd like to text a question, you can text it to 330-541-5794. The number again is 330-541-5794, and our staff will work it into the program. May we have our first question, please? Which one? <laughs> Do you have um, an explanation for why, whether it's the United States or, or Britain or France or Israel, we don't have these great leaders? When we have, you know, better education, you could make the argument, and an, an opportunity, you know, we don't have the Golda Meirs or the, you know, Abraham Lincolns. Why? Well, all right, start with a proposition, and I, I vowed, you know, once you drop a nickel in me, I just continue to spin, so I really have to control myself. First of all, greatness is supposed to be rare, right? I mean, you know, I mean, John Keegan identifies, well, Hitler and, and, and Stalin were great and bad, 
Yeah, and everybody's great and good. There just aren't that many. Greatness is unparalleled, unrivaled, unprecedented achievement. That's really hard. And it's harder. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd share the title of my last book, which is The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. Can't have and doesn't want. The media has a lot to do with it because it's now a 24-7 maw which devours everything in its, in its wake. Just one little story. So FDR, right, uh, diagnosed with infantile paralysis. Um, he just was reelected. He's at Franklin Field outside Philadelphia. He's ascending the podium. The crowd been 100,000 people waiting for FDR to speak. He starts to ascend the podium, and his speech text, which isn't on an iPhone or a teleprompter, falls out of his left brace, um, crumbles. And the President of the United States, in front of 100,000 people, starts to fall. The head of the Secret Service and his son James rally around the President, get the speech text, and he proceeds to go to podium and deliver the speech. Not a single word was reported in the press or radio on that fall. It's really hard. De Gaulle talked about the mystique of power. It's really hard in this climate to, to try to create that kind of detachment. Very, and FDR was car often carried through doors and windows because he couldn't walk. And yet Hyde Park, you'll find probably two photographs of FDR in a wheelchair. It was a conspiracy between the press and the White House to not emphasize. And you know, for a nation that was down on its heels, the image of a man that people didn't care about if, that FDR couldn't walk. In fact, I think he, he inspired a nation. You also can't have greatness. And Lincoln was the, an undeniable president, and yet people hated him. And yet, he was capable of doing things that even his detractors ultimately came to appreciate. We're polarized. We're, we're not only polarized, the political science call, scientists call it effective polarization. We don't, it's not that we disagree with people over policy. We don't like them. We don't want our sons and daughters to be around them. The stats on whether you object to your son or daughter marrying a member of the opposite party in the 60s was in single digits. Now it's 25%, mostly, by the way, among Democrats. So what do you do, what do, you do with all this? And we've, we've had incredibly polarizing moments in our history. We fought a civil war. And yet, it's, it's harder now. I, I wonder if it's really possible in this climate to ever have a president that is appreciated by the majority of the American public. And I, I can't answer that. You said that uh, Israel's goal is unattainable, that it will not destroy Hamas. You have not commented on, uh, commented on Ukraine, but it seems to me that Zelensky's goal of kicking the Russians out of the territory they now occupy is also unattainable. At what point does the United States say to these two leaders, Netanyahu and Zelensky, we will reduce our military or support or eliminate our military support because you're not going to be able to attain, obtain these goals? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. If you look at the Biden administration's uh, position on Israel, even before uh, the October 7 um, conflict began, uh, Joe Biden, and again, I, it's not a, a, a global question. We're dealing with Joe Biden, Zelensky, and Benjamin Netanyahu. Joe Biden, alone among uh, modern American presidents, has an emotional attachment to the idea of Israel, the people of Israel, the security of Israel that is almost unprecedented in the presidency. I watched Bill Clinton, who had no history with Israel, um, grieve for um, former Prime Minister Rabin. And Clinton writes in his memoirs, I loved Rabin as I had, lo had rarely loved another man. That's an extraordinary statement for an American president to make. Biden's default position is not to confront, it's to accommodate. And let's be clear, 
it's not just the fact that Biden's support for Israel is imprinted on his emotional DNA. It's also imprinted on his political DNA. And this year is going to be probably among the most consequential elections in the modern history of the United States. Biden's objective, Democrats' objective, the strategic imperative is to uh, not have the presumptive Republican nominee regain the White House. That means, my judgment, I've watched presidents of both parties on this issue, a certain degree of risk aversion, not risk readiness when it comes to having sustained public fights with an Israeli prime minister. Presidents don't like to fight with Israeli prime ministers. It's messy, it's awkward, it can be politically costly, and usually, but not always, witness Bush 41 and James Baker, it can be counterproductive. People ask me all the time, why doesn't Biden just pick up the phone and say enough? The reason is part of, part of it's domestic politics, but more than that, it's Biden's emotional bonding, particularly on October 7th, in the wake of what happened on October 7th. He's much more empathetic to the Israeli case and narrative he tries to be with respect to the Palestinians, but it never seems to convey, large part because he's focused on Hamas, not on the suffering of the vast majority of Palestinians in Gaza. So I don't think that enough conversation uh, is going to take place. He reportedly told Netanyahu in the last call uh, last week that he expected this war not to be going on in for, the, for most of 2024. And the Israelis, probably not for, for Biden because of increasing casualties, because of the pressure from the hostage families, because of the IDF's recognition, Israeli Defense Force's recognition, they cannot and will not destroy Hamas as an organization. Now, Hamas is the embodiment of an idea. It's an objectionable idea, the, the destruction of the state of Israel. Um, but they're going to be left standing. If, if this ends with Hamas's sovereignty in Gaza eroded, in other words, Hamas cannot dictate who governs, Hamas cannot dictate what aid goes in, and Hamas cannot um, recreate a military option, it could be a success, but that's that's going to be extremely difficult to achieve because the Palestinian Authority, already weak with no credibility, Mahmoud Abbas now in the 18th year of a four-year term, at 88, has no credibility in the West Bank. In order to bring the Palestinian Authority back to Gaza, you're going to have to have elections. You're going to have to figure out how to empower Palestinians, and that is going to be extremely difficult in, in this environment. As far as Zelensky is concerned, uh, people I respect believe that, that conversation with Vladimir Zelensky is long overdue. That Zelensky has to begin to understand that the chances, three times more people in Russia, an industrial base that's larger, now with Iranian uh, infusion of drones, North Korean artillery shells, the Russians are, are producing a million of these artillery shells, that at some point Zelensky may have to realize that the 20% of Ukraine he does not control, the Donbass, he's not going to control. But that conversation um, uh, has not yet been had. And we'll see what happens with the emergency supplemental package that is still stalled in a Congress. Um, that's critically important to get that passed. Reid. Always enjoy having you here. My question is, for 20 years, we fought a war against the Taliban's, and we came back and gave the power back to Taliban's. Are, is that what is going to be repeated in Israel uh, with, regarding Hamas? The second point is when uh, Bibi doesn't want to have a two-state solution. He has very clearly articulated it. And our policy always has been two-state solution with killing off 10,000 or 20,000, whatever the number is, does that make that possible that at some point the two-state solution will ever be placed? Right. Okay. So, I'll, I'll, I mean, 
the two-state solution, the least bad option to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's the only solution that deals with the demographic, political, psychological realities. After October 7, the odds of Israelis and Palestinians living happily ever after under one roof is crazy. Separation through negotiations. Now, in order to have a meaningful negotiation leading to that, you need three things, and you don't have them. Number one, you need leaders on both sides that are masters of their politics, not prisoners of their ideologies. Number two, you need these leaders to care more about their negotiations and getting this done than any outside power. You, you ever heard the quip that in the history of the world nobody ever washed a rental car? Do you know why people don't wash their rental cars? Because people care only about what they own. That's why. And there is insufficient ownership on the part of Israelis and Palestinians. That, by the way, is the most profound piece of philosophy that in the day that I heard that, Larry Summers and Tom Friedman are still fighting, I think, over who originated that expression. I think <laughs> neither of them, by the way. I, uh, but lack of ownership. And finally, an agreement on the core issues, borders, security, Jerusalem, refugees, and ultimately, end of all conflict and claims. The gaps on those issues before October 7th were this wide. I was at the last serious effort to solve that problem, Camp David, July 2000. And, and um, the gaps coming out of that summit, which we advised Clinton, I mean, he didn't need any advice, but it really was not a good idea. Because Arafat and Barack, Barack put some pretty heroic proposals on the table, but there was no way Arafat would or could have accepted them, particularly on Jerusalem. And then you had the Second Intifada, and then Arafat unleashes the tiger from the cage, and the Israeli-Palestinian relationship had not recovered from the Second Intifada. And now you have October 7th. If you're a 10-year-old Israeli or Palestinian, if you're 15 years old now, what happened on October 7th and the Israeli response to October 7th is going to sear your consciousness for the rest of your life. That is the lift that anybody who chooses to take this on. The killing was in, on the Palestinian side was indiscriminate, discriminate and savage. Are the Israelis, uh, did the Israelis adhere to international humanitarian law, which are two Two issues, distinction and proportionality. I don't think the Israelis willfully and intentionally set out to kill innocent Palestinians. I believe their rules of engagement expanded, expanded. And in many respects, they were prepared to sacrifice accuracy for doing damage. If you read the New York Times today, there's a, there's a piece on Israel's strike on Jabalia refugee camp to kill one Hamas leader and uh, several of his compatriots. I think there were several hundred Palestinians, New York Times reports, and the casualty figures, I mean, are not authoritative. Um, and so it's, it's a legitimate target if the military advantage accrued by a strike is outweighs the harm done to civilians. I'm not an international lawyer. Those are the sorts of questions about every single strike. So if you want to, you know, international criminal court, we, we're not a member, the Israelis aren't a member, even the International Court of Justice, who you know came out with their ruling today, it'll take two years to decide whether or not the Israelis were guilty of genocide. I think that's frankly unfounded, um, and it, it's rich coming from a country like South Africa that introduced the brief, who basically has acquiesced and supported what may actually be a sufficiently legitimate charge of genocide, Putin's campaign against Ukraine. Putin set out to extinguish, extinguish the idea of Ukraine and to kill as many Ukrainians as he possibly could and literally to have Ukraine cease to exist.
as a polity. That, you could argue, is genocide. And I'm not minimizing or trivializing what the Israelis have succeeded in doing in going after Hamas targets. That's going to that's gonna live on for many years to come. So, uh, I don't know, I forgot, where were we on this one? I've wandered off the, I've wandered off the highway, it doesn't surprise me. Sorry, go ahead. Um, well, I wish I had a little more time then. With regard to uh, Hamas and, and uh, the casualty numbers, I just want to remind the audience that, if you recall, the hospital very early in the campaign, it was uh, stated that the Israelis killed 500 people in the hospital. When the news came out, it was less than 50 by the Islamic uh, Jihad group in a parking lot. Yeah, so, it was a, it no, was no, a, I'm, I'm just, yeah, you know, so there's a 10% Islamic number right. potential. Yeah. I'm just reminding people as far as official numbers and that kind of stuff. The question I have is that you mentioned a two-state solution. It uh, and Barack's offer of almost 90% of the West Bank and everything. Um, it seems to me there is a, already an existing two-state solution. Uh, Jordan has roughly 80% of his population is Palestinian. Uh, the Queen of Jordan is a Palestinian, which means the next king of uh, Jordan will be a Palestinian. So there, there's a Palestinian state already. Any comments? Yeah, I mean, and don't, don't take it from me. I mean, just listen to what the Israelis have to say. Number one, that's Israel's longest and arguably least defensible border. Longest and arguably least defensible border. There's no way. You talk to anybody in Shin Bet, Mossad, Israeli military, that they're going to say, you're right, let's do that. That's a strategic defeat for the state of Israel. And number two, who's to say Jordan's uh, not a democracy, for sure. Um, it's had its problems with stability. Who's to say that 10, 15, 20 years from now, uh, political uncertainty or uh, tumult in Jordan wouldn't produce a leadership that is fundamentally hostile or willing to break the peace treaty, which was signed in 1994. Um, no, I think a Palestinian state in Jordan would be uh, a strategic defeat for Israel. And I, I don't think it makes sense. Jordanians are worried about it, the Hashemites, that is. Um, again, the two-state solution right now is a thought experiment. I mean, there's just 2024 will be the year of Gaza. Should Joe Biden get a second term, it's conceivable that, and you have new leadership in Israel and on the Palestinian side. But again, I mean, it's just, it's very hard for me to imagine. I would say during my lifetime, who knows? But it's very difficult for me to imagine hearing the following. An Israeli prime minister before the Israeli Knesset, Palestinian prime minister or president before the Palestinian Legislative Council. They stand up before their constituencies and the world and they say the following. We don't have peace, but on the core issues that drive this conflict, border security, refugee Jerusalem, and end of all conflict and claims, we declare no irredenta, no aspirations, it's all done. It is almost inconceivable that I would be able to hear those speeches given. To do that, you'd need a Mandela, a de Klerk. No one believed that apartheid in South Africa would ever end the way that it did. And South Africa has a lot of political problems. But it did end. And it ended in large part because of leadership. And we don't have that anywhere. There's no Sadat, there's no Begin, there's no Rabin, there's no King Hussein, even Arafat in his first incarnation 
No, I mean, I see you frowning, but Rabin, who felt incredibly uncomfortable dealing with Arafat, also admitted to us repeatedly, I said during the first incarnation, 93 until Rabin's murder in 95, that Arafat had taken some extremely difficult decisions. You could look at the Oslo agreements and you will not find any mention of a Palestinian state. You will, you will not find any mention of a settlements freeze. You will find no mention of Palestinian, not even control, forget sovereignty, over Jerusalem, none of that. Now, that was, the last, that was the last concession Arafat was prepared to make. But nonetheless, it was a heavy lift. and Rabin understood it. That's what you need. You don't have that. I've been singing this song since January of 2003. And it's not a happy song. It's annoyingly negative. It's why a lot of people just hit the delete button. Because they don't want to hear this. And we at Camp David fell into that trap. We trivialized these issues. We did not respect the issues. Jerusalem, both sides asserted sovereignty. We came up with these proposals. Well, we'll give the Palestinians sovereignty above ground because that's where, that's where the Dome of the Rock, the reliquary, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque are. And we'll give the Israeli sovereignty below ground, which is where the remains of the first and second Jewish temples are to be found. Then we, then we proposed taking sovereignty away from them. This was divine overlapping sacred space. Why, does, why do either of them need sovereignty? Then we toyed with an idea of setting up a functional committee. We didn't get just how powerful the Jerusalem issue was, is, and will remain. And that's just one example. Get the other issues, territory, borders, security, refugees. So you got to be humble, and I am. The perfect can't be the enemy of the good, because if that, if that happens, you neither get the perfect nor the good. And that's just hard in this conflict. It's not for nothing. There's no conflict ending solution. And I might add, it's not for nothing that the Israelis avoided going into Gaza in a comprehensive, massive way since Hamas took over in 2007. Because what they're encountering is something that they didn't plan on, the 450 miles of tunnel infrastructure. They just, they didn't. Um, and frankly, the American military, I, I interviewed Dave Petraeus a while back, Fallujah took five days. He told me he lost 75 Marines. He killed 2,200 fighters. Five days. We're now in the fifth month of the war. And Hamas still survives. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, you're right. Should I uh, sit down? My yes, yes. Okay. thank you so much. Aaron David Miller. Uh, thank you, Aaron, for joining us here today. Forums like this are made possible thanks to generous support from individuals like all of you. You can learn more about how to become a guardian of free speech at cityclub.org. We'd like to welcome students joining us from Chardon High School and MC Squared STEM High School. We'd also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by the DLR Group and uh, the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for the Humanities at Tri-C. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Next week at the City Club, on Friday, February 2nd, we will welcome Emily Campbell. She's the new president and CEO of the Center for Community Solutions. That's part of our Local Heroes series. And then on Wednesday, February 7th, we'll be back at the Happy Dog on, uh, in Detroit Shoreway, taking on education journalism. That forum is free and open to the public. It's in the evening. You can learn more about all of these forums at cityclub.org. That brings us to the end of our program. Aaron David Miller, once again, thank you so much for your work and for joining us. <laughs> Members and friends of the City Club, our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.